This is episode number 42, Ask a Cycling Coach with the experts at Trainer Road. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. I'm your host, Sonia, and this is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life. I talk with experts in the categories of mindset, psychology, nutrition, training, and more to help you optimize your life so that you can be the best version of yourself. Discomfort is part of this process. It's a necessary part of this process. It's how we overreach. So if you're doing workouts that are consistently comfortable or never really push your bounds, never really make you dread that last couple of intervals or, or worry about the next workout, you're probably not pushing yourself to the level that you can push yourself to. And you're probably not going to experience the gains that you could gain or make if you learn how to properly challenge yourself. It's been incredible over the last nine months to have such a dynamic group of guests that I've been able to personally draw inspiration and learn a lot from. And I'm really glad that you guys have been able to do similar things with what you've been hearing as well. Today's topics are rooted in endurance training. And I put out a message a little while ago asking people to submit your questions so that we could talk about them on the podcast while I have some cycling coaches available. As athletes, we all know if we exercise, we'll feel better and get stronger. That's why we get started. But when you start adding in focus and structure, I like to say that you are no longer just exercising, you are training. As a professional athlete myself, I've been through pretty much every scenario of different things in my training. I've been chronically overtrained, I've been undertrained, I've played with doing minimal training, and I've always been looking at the latest research and methods for improvement. I have been primarily self-coached in my career, which is something that most people don't know. But the key with coaching is getting to know your body and just figuring out what works for you. Today's guests are two people I respect and continually follow for new information. They are the backbone behind the popular cycling trainer app, Trainer Road. I've personally used Trainer Road to get me through the winters here in Kelowna, BC, where you cannot ride outside. And that was a big shock because I used to live in Colorado where I trained year round outside. I never rode the trainer. And when I moved here about four years ago, that changed a lot for me. As many of you know, I do a lot of stage races, even in the winter time in warmer climates. So I use my trainer to train for these long stage races. And the first time I did it, I was a little bit worried because you can't train the volume of hours indoors as you can outdoors dynamite combo of trainer road and the wahoo fitness kicker smart trainer i've been using the wahoo trainer for several years since it first came out and it's been really great it keeps you honest this episode isn't about riding the trainer per se it's about a lot of pitfalls and common questions that come up with any type of endurance sport everything we talk about can be applied to running triathlon and cycling and even swimming we have the head coach at Trainer Road, Chad Timmerman, here today, along with Jonathan Lee. Chad has devoted his life to researching the science behind cycling and testing ways to get faster on the bike with over a decade of experience. Jonathan Lee is a Level 2 USA Cycling Certified Coach and the host of Ask a Cycling Coach podcast. His background is in motocross, but he is also an avid and very high-level mountain bike racer as well. Jonathan is a good friend of mine, and he also posts some really good stuff on his Instagram, so check him out there. I love the Trainer Road Ask a Cycling Coach podcast because Chad, Jonathan, and Nate, who also started Trainer Road, 
answer listeners' questions each week. And that's such a great way to bring value to your listeners. I also really enjoy reading their blog. I wish I could sit and geek out all day about training with these guys, but we had to condense it down to just one hour. One hour where I took your questions from my Facebook page and got some answers. If I had to pick some key takeaways from today's conversation for you, it would be understanding the importance of recovery and what that actually looks like, trying to figure out your body so you can tell if you're starting to get overtrained, how much you actually need to train to get faster, how to balance training with a full life, the key to success at stage races, and more. As Jonathan said in the show, experience reigns supreme. So by trying new things and getting to know our body and getting new experiences under our belt, we learn trends and we get to be a more intuitive athlete. If you guys are enjoying the show, take a screenshot of it and share it on your social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you like to play, and let your friends know you're listening to this. You can find it on my website, sonyalooney.com slash podcasts, and you can actually click on individual episodes that you want to share. I really appreciate that. You guys sharing is the oxygen of the show. It really helps grow it. It really helps get new listeners involved. And I appreciate that because it really makes a difference in the world to bring great information and for all of us to learn more. I want to give a shout out to this week's podcast sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. Life insurance is one of those things that we all need as adults at some point, and the sooner we get it, the better, because the rates are better. And speaking of better rates, Health IQ actually helps us save money and get better rates when we take care of ourselves. So if you're an athlete, if you're a weightlifter, if you're a runner, if you eat a vegan diet, there's a lot of different research that they have proving the mortality rates and how much better we are and how much longer we live when we take care of ourselves. You can also take an online quiz on their website and they also look at your Strava to see where you would qualify. People save up to 33%, which is a lot. So if you're looking to get a new quote, you wanna save money for your new bike, this might be a great way to do it. Go to healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent for a free consultation. There's a lot of moving pieces going on for me. I just finished a stage race in Spain, and then I'm heading to Utah to support my husband, Matt, at the True Grit. I raced the True Grit a few different times. It's a 100-mile mountain bike race with also a 50-mile option, and I'm debating doing the 50-mile race as just a fun ride, but it's really hard to put on a number plate and show up when you're completely blown out of your skull and just to do a fun ride without any type of expectation. So I'm not really sure what I'm going to do yet, but I'm thinking about it. I wanted to give a great big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show financially on Patreon. Patreon's a crowdfunding website for as little as four bucks a month. That's just like a coffee. It makes a big difference whenever you guys can help support the show because the more the show grows, the higher quality guests I can get. Whenever I reach out to guests, they want to know things like how many downloads, what type of audience I have. So if I can get this show growing, it's going to be even better for all of us. So thank you so much for those of you who are supporting the show. To do that, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. Thanks, you guys. I was stoked to see that a bunch of you guys really enjoyed my last newsletter. 
You can sign up for the newsletter. If you just go to my website, sonyalooney.com, there's a pop-up that comes up and there's also a sidebar that shows the newsletter subscription. I don't send out very many. I send out one, maybe two per month, but I like to have just a bunch of different things I've been thinking about and also a summary of the month's podcast shows, maybe a YouTube video, and also some articles that I've read, some quotes I've been pondering. Just basically a bird's eye view of what I've been up to that month. So it's fun to connect with you guys there as well because social media doesn't always show us everything. (laughs) And maybe you don't want to see all my social media posts anyway, but with emails, I can actually send you directly what's happening. And sometimes people are frustrated because they they say that they don't see that I posted certain things. So the email is a really great way to get that. Trainer Road, guys. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so we have Chad Timmerman and Jonathan Lee on the show, and you guys are both coaches. That's right. Yeah, so I'm, I guess I'm much less of a coach than Chad, I would say. Um, Chad's, <laughs> Chad's our head coach at Trainer Road, and then I've been a certified coach for the past three years, but Chad's been for significantly more and coached athletes of all disciplines. So I'm more or less the gear nerd that has some coaching knowledge, but, uh, but Chad definitely <laughs> is the de facto coach over here. So, Yeah, well, I was really excited to have you guys on the show because, number one, you have amazing articles on your website, and there's some really great information there. And then number two is your podcast, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast, with a lot of topics covered, and it's really neat that you guys have people write in what their questions are, and every single week you answer them. Yeah, it's a ton of them. Just yesterday I was going through, like, it's crazy how many questions we get, but it's a ton of fun. We, we like doing it. It's kind of a good opportunity for mm-hmm. us to make sure we stay in touch with the real problems that all of us face with training. And, you know, we all live different lives and different things, so they get in the way of training. So it's a really cool opportunity to kind of get a broad idea of all the issues that people face and they're trying to stay on track with their fitness. It really forces me to stay abreast of current research too, which is beneficial in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think the most recent one that I really liked was, it's kind of related to training, but it was the stretching piece that you guys did on like, here's five stretches to do with like your neck and your thoracic spine. And a lot of times we're like, oh yeah, we should stretch, but then we just don't because it's like decision fatigue. So I thought that that was really good. Yeah, narrowed it down a bit. Yeah, it's it's something that I've felt is really important too. Uh, I deal with a lot of overuse injuries. I have no clue. Um, You know, I have a lot of muscular imbalance. I should probably spend more time doing some strength training. I'm doing plenty of things, but I've noticed a huge benefit from that. And that's kind of like our focus is we try to, you know, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. And once again, we kind of do that by force since we have so many people sending in questions in different circumstances. So something like stretching, like you said, it seems automatic, but there are a lot of people that, you know, it's mandatory for them. So it's a good opportunity for us to learn from that and then apply it and hopefully help others. So. Yeah, I think on that end, I wanted to bring out one of the questions that I saw. And the question was, does foam rolling actually work? So I wanted to ask you guys about that. We touched on that. There's absolutely the potential for benefit. It's really a question of how people go about it. Quality of the roller does figure into it as well. So, I mean, we said one of the easy criticisms is that people use these spongy foam rollers that are doing little more than uh, maybe facilitating a bit of blood flow. They're not actually breaking down the fascial adhesions, which is what we're trying to address. 
but there is benefit. I personally prefer a little more rigorous techniques. Um, these uh, hard plastic balls, whether they're the lacrosse size or the the bigger softball size ones that are textured, they're they're brutal. But the more you use them, the less brutal they become, and the less or the more freed up your muscles and your fascial system becomes. Yeah, sometimes I think we should do a psychological test on people who decide to become coaches because it seems like we're all masochists and the coach is like the facilitator of the masochism. <laughs> no, that's apt. That's dead on. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. And foam rolling is part of it. Like you, I think that we do kind of get addicted to the pain perhaps a bit, you know, as cyclists and, and riders and foam rolling is all a part of that. But like, I think it's the same relationship where pain begets or comes thereafter uh, with gain, whatever else you want or whichever direction you want to say with it. But I've been using foam rolling pretty regularly for quite some time to try to free up a lot of issues that I have and joints and everything else that, that keep me on the bike. And yeah, I view it as something that's like an irreplaceable part of my routine. However, it's there's not a whole lot of research out there that says, you know, athlete X uh, worked out and didn't foam roll and then did the same type of training and then did foam roll. Yeah, there's, there's nothing so specific, but there are things that point you toward the benefits of addressing the fascial system and how it can limit movement and decrease neural efficiency and, and the like. So there are benefits, and even though they haven't tied studies directly to a technique of addressing those adhesions, addressing them in some way is beneficial, and there are some studies that back that up. Great. Yeah, I think that recovery is a, a big topic that I want to kind of go deep in with you guys because a lot of people say, oh, well, recovery is part of the training, but we don't actually talk about what recovery looks like. And another thing we don't talk about is what fatigue actually looks like. So, you know, you have like all of these different metrics on defining like what your TSS is, your training stress score and like looking at all these inputs in your life. But it's really hard for people to know exactly when they should rest. And I know it's a really broad question, but I want you guys to tackle that. It's an unfortunate truth. We haven't got the metrics behind the fatigue side of the equation, you know, also the recovery side tied hand in hand. There are certain metrics that are showing promise, heart rate variability being probably the best bet at this point. And then, you know, we just, we have to keep tabs on our, our rate of adaptation. Are we actually improving? Have, have we plateaued? Are we going backwards? Those are the easy tells. But uh, as far as assigning metrics to them, and it's, it's, it's a little more nebulous. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we deal with Trainer Road, we're prescribing training to people and that's structured training that's, that's aimed to anticipate the, or it's based on the basic physiological principles that govern how our body grows. And that when our body grows in strength and, and ability and specifically performance on the bike, you know, we know that we have to follow certain principles of work and rest and proper ratios and, and adjust those as a person progresses. And the interesting thing is we can measure the work side so well with the power meter, right? Like it's very objective. It's very clear. It's not like heart rate so that you're guessing what that means in terms of actual performance. We can measure the exact work you're doing because we have a power meter on the bike. And it's really helpful because we can prescribe very precise work for people. But on the recovery side of things, that is so much, it's a tricky endeavor. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that I see people doing where um, I think a lot of the time a tricky thing for us is if we see data or if we have data, we are very trusting in those numbers rather than making sure that we look at the context around which those numbers come from. For example, like something like a heart rate monitor, for example, if you're using that to, to measure recovery and you're using something like heart rate variability, anything else like that, there's still plenty of things that heart rate can be subject to that could give you uh, – 
misinformation perhaps. There are plenty of things with heart rate variability to try to weed that out, but it's nowhere near, the point is it's nowhere near as an exact science as prescribing work with a power meter. So it's kind of, a lot of it is understanding what your body does, how it reacts to training and how it feels and having a very good fix on that. And that can be tricky in itself too, because we're very good at, at not paying attention to variables that may have influenced the way we feel. But yeah, it, it is really tricky. Um, fatigue is something that, you know, as we work hard, we build more fatigue as we train, but there certainly are limits to where we can go with that and where it starts to actually become too much work for how much we're able to recover. So like if somebody wants to use heart rate variability and kind of just start getting a look at what their body's doing, what would you recommend people start doing? I've kind of dove into, I think it's, uh, they're rolling out a device that is just a fingertip device. So it doesn't require you to wear a heart rate strap, put one on in the morning and lay flat. And it's, it's a little more accommodating. Um, once that comes out, I'll have more to contribute on this. I think it's Elite HRV mm-hmm. is the company. Oh and yeah, got, I have their uh, app on my phone actually. Yeah, it's, it's a good <laughs> app and they've got a lot of good resources surrounding it. And, and once this device comes out, they'll actually have a good uh, device that makes it easy to capture the HRV data. And then I'll be able to, you know, share my opinion on it from there forward. But you know, from what I've read and what I've seen, it looks quite useful. It looks like it might be pretty reliable. You just have to determine whether or not a depressed heart rate for you actually means what it means for another person because they can mean two opposite things. Typically trends the same way, but there are a lot of people who are, are just backwards. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a study that was done with HRV and... They saw a depressed heart rate, meaning for some people uh, or for the majority, or I'll just, I guess, lay it out safely this way. For some people, a depressed heart rate meant that they were fatigued, whereas with some people, and we're just talking, you know, acute fatigue, that's just, you know, day-to-day stuff. And for some people, it meant overtraining. Uh, For some people, actually an accelerated heart rate or one that was was higher than normal would mean something different than something for another person. So uh, it's important to remember that a lot of this is trend analysis. And it's individual trend analysis. It's not like, um, well, you know, Sonia's heart rate is this. So my heart rate is this. And, you know, you shouldn't draw any conclusions there from one person to the next. And even in situations where, you know, you've done uh, some crazy stage races down in Chile and the Andes and super high elevation. And then you've done other stage races where you're low in elevation. And in those situations, you should expect to see different data. You know, elevation, everything else affects that. So you have to you're doing trend analysis, but you're doing it with a few grains of salt handy to make sure that you you keep the data as comparable as possible. Yeah, that's a good point. It is about trends. I mean, we can't look at it on you know a single day. We have to accumulate a fair amount of data before we can start making sense of it. And it's it's very subjective. So you have to limit it to you and pretty much you alone. So your personal trends. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like even just heart rate in general, when I stand over my bike, I want to see a heart rate of about 90 because that means that I'm ready to go. But if my husband stands over his bike and his heart rate is higher than normal, that means he's going to have a bad, like, it probably means he's going to have a bad day. So it's like that exact example of two people with complete opposite trends, meaning different things. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. Something I I mentioned on one of our podcast episodes actually was uh, a junior that was racing with our team. 
uh, the local junior team that, that I was coaching at the time. He was at the Sea Otter Classic, which is a big race. He had probably been running around getting candy and swag at the booths, you know, for three <laughs> days straight. And he showed up for that race. And when he was on the line, his heart rate monitor was reading darn near his max. And he was extremely nervous. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> when he, the, the poor little guy heard that or saw that and didn't know what to do, right? So mm-hmm. it could as it could very well have been an error with the heart rate monitor reading. I know that you're an a Wahoo athlete and I really can't say enough good things about the Wahoo ticker as far as a heart rate monitor goes in terms of consistent data. I've actually never had an errant reading with that heart rate monitor. Like a, a lot of the times if you have one in your jersey, for example, is flapping in the wind when you're descending, that can actually cause like a static interference and it can cause your heart rate to spike up to absurd levels when you're descending. And man, if you look at that, you might think you have to visit a cardiologist or you might wonder why am I that scared by descents, right? Or it could just be a thing where it has a weak connection. Plenty of heart rate monitors suffer from those things. But the best one that I've found in terms of chest straps is the the ticker. That's a really consistent heart rate monitor and they handle the data really well. So in his case, yeah, he was through the roof. And if he had paid attention to that, I'm not sure if he would have even raced, but we just had to tell him in that case, no worries, relax and you'll have a fun race, you know? So it can be tricky. There's some pitfalls. (laughs) Yeah, a really cool thing I like about the ticker X is it like I'm not a runner, but I've done a little bit of running and it'll actually tell you what your like your running cadence is based on like the heart rate strap. And I thought that was really neat. Yeah, it's a clever bit of tech that they have there. I really do like that. Yeah, they're they're good with that. Yeah, so you guys have a bunch of training plans. So, okay, first of all, for people who don't know what Trainer Road is, it's an app and also a website that you can use with your trainer. And I've been using mine for, I've been using Trainer Road for a few years to get ready in the winter for my races. And a great thing about Trainer Road is that you guys have a bunch of different prescribed training plans. So people just have to buy like the monthly membership and then they have access to all of these different training programs depending on like what their sport is like triathletes cycling mountain biking like different distances so you open up these different programs and then there's like several workouts a week that are prescribed and people just start doing these workouts and they don't have a coach and i think that a lot of times people do end up overtraining themselves because their assessment of what their functional threshold power their ftp is or even their fatigue level on that day and what they should be doing is a bit skewed. So how do you guys prevent people from overtraining whenever you have these plans up there? Well, so first off, we assess their fitness and get a feel for where they're starting. And then, of course, the workout scale based on that. So we know we're working relative to their their actual capabilities, not somebody else's. And then we recommend anyone who's new to power-based training or structured training even, that they start with the low-volume plans. Just get a sense of what it feels like to train with some structure and to actually endure high-intensity workouts repeatedly over the course of a week. See what their rate of recovery is, their rate of adaption that comes with it or following it, and then scale up afterwards. So, you know, start with a low volume plan, see how that goes. Even if it's just a couple of weeks or maybe it's the first six weeks of one of our base plans, then decide, can I handle more stress? And not just a question, don't make it just a question of, can I handle more and get away with it, but can I handle it and adapt positively? Can I continue to improve my fitness? Yeah. And something interesting that you mentioned there, something that I think that in, in one respect, you could say we've, we've stacked the deck for ourselves because uh, we put a lot of work into making sure that the plans are tested and they follow the type of patterns that people need in order to get faster. We're not pushing mm-hmm. people to crazy levels or anything else like that. We're following safe and sound principles. And there's a lot of research and work that goes into that on Chad's part specifically. So in other words, we know that we aren't, if somebody's following a plan, 
and I'll get into the rest and work ratio enough, but as long as they are recovering enough from that work, then they're going to be getting faster. And it's interesting. You mentioned something like a person takes an FTP test and that's, we use that as their, that's like a, a test to find out your threshold power. And then based off of that, we can then structure those workouts like Chad mentioned. And I see a lot of people, they'll jump into things and they'll take a test and they'll go through a training plan. And then by the time the next phase of their training starts, they have another FTP test, right? And they've gotten faster, they've gotten a lot stronger, and then they, or maybe, and even they've gotten better at testing, right? So they know how to like pace that effort that we use to judge their threshold by. And then they get a new FTP. It's super, it's way higher than it was before. They're really excited. And then they go into their next workouts and they're like, hey, I think something's wrong. I think I might've over-assessed, but over-assessment is something that's actually like, it's really, really hard to do actually. And it's kind of funny, we're, we're testing a new testing format right now, and there, uh, I can think of one person who tested and they said, this has to, this is way wrong. This is way too high. I think your format's inflating it. And then we said, well, give your next workout a shot and let's see how it goes. And he said, I did it and it was absolutely miserable, but I finished it. And we're like, good, <laughs> like, that's it. Like, it's about hard work. And it's not that you should be miserable on the bike. There are days to work hard. There are days to work extremely hard. There are days to rest extremely hard, right? But I think that one thing that this really helps people with is to get the most out of their training. Some people, I think that uh, it's rare that you see people, I feel, train too hard in one specific session. It's much more common to see people not rest enough from the training that they're doing. That's mm -hmm. something that I think that with these plans, we're able to hopefully, like Chad said, we recommend that people start with a low volume plan, but in the sense that we've tried to plan these on days for people, uh, specific days so that they can understand, okay, you have one workout every other day, roughly, or you have two to three re you know, rest days or maybe four rest days in a week. And what we're really trying to get across is those are rest days because uh, you know, this is commonly said, but you know, when you're training and you're dosing your body with that hard work, you're not getting faster then. You're just you're you're mixing the ingredients in the bowl. But if you don't give that enough time to be able to bake, so to speak, or to build up, then that can be really complicated and you actually can't absorb that training and you can't get faster. So you really only get faster as you can recover adequately from the amount of work you're giving yourself, if that makes sense. Uh, you can work really hard, but if you aren't recovering enough, then you just won't get faster. Yeah, something that my husband says is if I'm trying to do a workout and I'm still too tired to execute the workout, he says, that's okay, you're still getting faster. And I think that's a really positive way to talk about fatigue when you're tired instead of like being upset that you're tired and berating yourself because you're not able to do yet another workout is just saying, well, yeah, I'm still getting faster now because I need to recover from my workout. That's a really important point that people need to understand is that fatigue is part and parcel with training. We're trying to induce fatigue, and sometimes we're going to have to carry that fatigue into subsequent workouts. It's, it's part of the plan. We have to basically just get used to higher and higher levels of fatigue, allow the proper adaptation, the proper recovery, and, and then we come back stronger. But fatigue is part of this whole package. You're, you're going to train tired often enough. That, that's basically the structure of a week, the structure of a training phase. You just get increasingly fatigued until you rest and you know let that fatigue kind of take root, transform. 
And something that I've always found that's really interesting is the worst I feel during my training plans are usually in the rest week. And I feel like when I'm going through the rest week, I feel like, oh, I don't know if it's working. I think next week is going to be really tough. But then the next week I feel fresh again because it's all that delayed effect, so to speak. So you're training and then you feel that fatigue and that fatigue ramps up and adds up. But then even when you start your recovery week, you've still got a lot of stress that your body's trying to absorb, right? So once you get through that recovery week, a lot of the time, you know, you just have to hold on to hope and get into that next workout and you'll surprise yourself that you'll be able to do more perhaps than you thought. It's a a point that I think a lot of people, perhaps they judge their workouts before they've started them. And rather than doing that, I'm I'm a big advocate for giving it a shot and seeing how it goes. And you can make adjustments from there. Maybe drop the intensity a little bit of the intervals, or maybe take a quick backpedal or just a quick, you know, three to five second break in the middle of an interval before you get back into it again. You can make these little adjustments, but, you know, don't sell your workout short before you start it because you might feel too fatigued. You might surprise yourself. Yeah, I think something we try, we try to convey is that fatigue and suffering, suffering is a strong word, but discomfort is part of this process. It's a necessary part of this process. It's how we overreach. So if you're doing workouts that are you know consistently comfortable or never really push your bounds, never really make you dread that last couple of intervals or, or worry about the next workout, you're probably not pushing yourself to the level that you can push yourself to. And you're probably not going to experience the gains that you could gain or make if you learn how to properly challenge yourself. Yeah, I, I just think that a lot of times people over-challenge themselves. And like, I've been doing this a long time, so I know when my body is getting to that point where I need to stop and I'm, I'm overdoing it. But how do people learn that about themselves? How do they learn that, okay, now I'm on the razor's edge and I'm going over and, I, and I'm not actually going to be getting any faster by fatiguing myself more? That's where it becomes tricky, and that's where we have to simply build our self-knowledge bases over time. We have to make mm-hmm. the mistakes sometimes. You have to—I mm-hmm. mean, you can see what level of stress is inducing positive adaptation. You're getting stronger, but could I be getting a little stronger? Well, I'll push it a little harder and see. Sometimes it pans out, sometimes it doesn't, but you're constantly learning and informing yourself. And, and where it gets particularly tricky is sometimes that additional stress load may elicit the, the response you're looking for. You may get stronger, but then sometimes there may be other things going on in your life, uh, other things that mean that— I can't handle this bump in stress. So it's never about simply what takes place on the bike. There are all sorts of other factors surrounding that. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, a good indication for me, I I try to keep track of all of those variables that are influencing my performance, fatigue, rest levels, whatever else. I try to keep track of them. And when I do that, that helps me understand perhaps or filter between, no, I really am getting too tired. Or no, it's just the fact that, you know, I had a really bad night's sleep last night. Like we were, we were just talking before this, Sonia, but my toddler was up with teething problems all night. Right. (laughs) So if I go into today's workout, I can anticipate feeling pretty darn tired, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm overtrained, if that makes sense. Right. So Mm -hmm. in this situation, what I would do is I would consider that variable and then I would go through my workout. And something that I, I usually try to pay attention to is If I'm struggling completing my intervals, and it depends, if you have an easy workout, then you might not be struggling with it. But if I'm struggling to complete the prescribed intervals to the point where I am having to make adjustments, then I start to throw up like a yellow flag, so to speak. And what I mean by that is I'll adjust that workout for the rest of the way through and going into the next one, I'll kind of have going into my next workout, the scheduled one, whenever that is, I'll kind of have like that yellow flag, that caution flag in my mind thinking, okay, pay attention. If I have to adjust again, then 
I'm going to need to perhaps skip a workout or maybe I take a workout that was scheduled for the next day. I make that a rest day and I just scoot everything back a day, something like that. Because if I'm struggling to complete my intervals with two scheduled workouts in a row, then I, I, you know, it's not that that's a solid trend at that point, but it's starting to show indications to me personally that there may be a trend there. So that's where I start to make bigger adjustments than just perhaps, you know, like I said, taking a quick breather in the middle of an interval or skipping an interval, doing something like that. At that point, I'll consider skipping a workout and really doubling down all the effort I would have put into that workout. I'll put into resting as best as I can. And if I can do that and then come back, I'll have that yellow flag handy again. I'll see how I perform. And more often than not, and this is obviously because of accrued experience, I know where I'm at in terms of my abilities, but more often than not, if I'm in that sort of a a slump where things are getting difficult day after day, if I really focus on recovering for one to two days, then I'll be able to get over it. You may be getting sick or something else like that, and you'll be aware of that eventually, of course, unfortunately, but it's all about being okay with making those adjustments when you need to make them. Because once again, and as you've mentioned, if you are pushing yourself too hard, you're just not going to get faster. So you have to be very present. And I think that's one and perhaps an unintended benefit of training for people is that they get very in touch with their body and what the current condition is telling them about themselves. Yeah. And something he touched on there is one day is never going to paint the whole picture. So you have to trust the process. You have to trust that you know this will eventually, you know, everything is in place such that it will work out if I stick with it. So I'm, I'm having a bad day, but I'm going to work through this bad day. And then you know, chances are you're going to come back and your next day is not going to be as bad. Maybe it'll be a, a great day and it'll, it'll completely balance out. It's, it's when that starts trending downward in general, where one workout's tough, the next workout's tougher, the next workout's tougher. That's when you know, you, you refer to that razor's edge, that's when you know you're definitely on the other side of it. And it's time to address that, time to recover a bit more effectively. Yeah, I think that something that Jonathan said about not sleeping very well last night I get questions a lot from people asking me how to balance training, working, having a life, sleeping, and then still having high expectations for what they should be able to do. So do you think that in terms of expectations, if someone's working like 40 plus hours a week and they have little kids at home and they still want to see friends and they want to train, what type of expectations should people have for themselves in terms of how much they should be training and how fast they actually should be getting? Yeah, that's that's where a, a big dose of realism is helpful for everybody. <laughs> we have to yeah. understand that we can only handle so much stress, and that stress comes at us from all sides. So if we're getting it off of the bike elsewhere, you know, in, in greater amount than usual, then it's going to have to affect what we do on the bike. Lest we set ourselves up for you know the sort of failures that we just described, where everything starts trending down. Uh, but but the fact is, we can handle so much stress. You have to figure out where it's all coming from and decide whether or not it's too much for you to handle. Yeah, it's you know the the traditional professional. Uh, athlete lifestyle, which Sonia, I think that you're a modern professional athlete. You're one that you have to maintain all of the performance expectations, like you said. So you have, there's a ton of training work in that. But then on top of that, you know, very few professional athletes in you know the grand scheme of things are actually able to just dose their body with training stress and no other types of stress, if that makes sense. The way mm-hmm. I try to look at it is my body is going to get dosed with stress. And if I can make a greater percentage of that stress, training stress, rather than work stress, rather than, you know, any number of other things that you may be facing, then that means that I'll be getting faster on my bike, right? But the reality is far from that. So 
I think that the, the most important thing that I've found with advising people in this situation is you have to be realistic with where you're currently at and you have to, like Chad said, trust in a process. So we see so many people like jump in with our training plans and they think, okay, so I ride eight hours a week outside, something like that, right? And if they ride eight hours a week outside, they look at our training plans and they see a high volume plan and they think, sweet, that's, you know, six hours or so a week. That's, I can do that. I do more than that right now. And they start doing that, but they don't consider the fact that this is all purely structured work, right? So it isn't that you're just pedaling nonstop the whole time, but the, 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 the actual composition of what you're doing when you're training like that, man, it's really tough stuff. So as a result, a person gets into a spot where they think, well, I'm actually doing less training stress on my bike because, you know, it's less time. But there's so much more to it, I guess, is, is what I'm getting at. So in terms of balancing it, be conservative when you start. And then you have to be comfortable with perhaps swallowing some pride and training lower in terms of the training volume that you need, perhaps, or that you anticipate you need, and then see the benefits come from that. And, you know, there are so many people that are balancing all of us really probably that are listening to this, we're balancing a lot of different things. And with as little, and this totally sounds like an infomercial line, so I hate sharing this, but like it doesn't take much. <laughs> it's like it's like three to four hours a week, right? If you do really structured, high quality work for three to four hours, even somebody that might be riding eight hours, 10 hours a week outside, but they're, they're just really not structuring that work. It's more just noodling around on the bike with occasional hard pushes you'll be amazed at what you'll see with just three to four hours of really structured work. So I think that there's a misconception around that, that people think they need to train a ton in order to get a lot of uh, benefit from it. But I think that as long as it's really structured, and once again, it's part of a solid structured plan so that you're not going to be working too hard or doing the wrong type of work, you can get a ton for not putting a whole lot in. And, and I often have kind of you know, like when we had our son and it was really busy time, I went back to like three hours a week and that was it. And I went from there from like, you know, eight hours a week of pure structure down to three hours a week. And I was blown away at what I could still do. I felt like I was cheating, you know, with like three hours a week because I was able to <laughs> skate by, you know, and people were like, wow, you're still fast, even though you're a dad. And in my mind, I'm like, oh gosh, I'm just waiting for this thing to come crashing down, you know, but it worked. It was enough to maintain my fitness at that point, which was at a relatively high level for people that are just getting into this or have a lot of different things. Don't worry if you can't train a ton, just pick a low volume plan, start low, and you'll be surprised at what you can do. And and hopefully that stresses you out less in all the other aspects of your life too. Yeah, that's something I actually like about the trainer is I, I love all the business things that I get to do with what I'm up to. And sometimes with the trainer, I know that I don't have to actually spend as much time riding my bike, which sounds funny because I do love riding my bike, but I love all the other <laughs> things happening in my life. So I like that I can get on my bike, get the work done, and then get back in my office and do other things that I love doing. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good way to put it is we have to achieve some level of balance, especially as working class athletes. And professional athletes are anything but balanced. They focus intently on one thing, and that's their performance. Everything else is relative to that. We focus on keeping uh, maintaining a high quality in everything we do, You know, our workouts, our performance out on the race course, but also our lives with our families, our jobs, et cetera. All those other things need to maintain. You know, we're shooting for that same high level of quality with everything. 
Yeah, and you you kind of break that rule, Sonia. <laughs> you're professional on all ends of it, right? So you're like a focused uh, case study, I guess I would say for this. It's pretty interesting stuff. So I joke that I'm like the most unprofessional professional athlete because my training <laughs> my training comes second most of the time. But no, like what you said about reduced hours. My first year after I quit my job and started like managing all these other things on my own to make an income, I was only training eight hours a week for a while and it was outside and I was freaking out because I thought, oh my gosh, like I'm barely training and I'm a pro and I'm only riding my bike eight hours a week. I was still fast. So, you know, I think there's this misconception that we have to ride 20 hours a week. And, and we talked about this with um, Dr. Chris Keim, who was on the show recently about how people have this inflated idea that they need to be spending many, many hours riding a bike to get faster. And that's just not the case. It's it's quality over quantity. And it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, no, that's exactly accurate. You can do a lot with quite a little. I mean, there, there's a point where that may plateau and you'll have to figure out how to increase that uh, training input such that you get the, the, the performance output you're, you're looking for. But too many people just beat themselves up with chronic stress. And I'm talking, you know, chronic stress on the bike or running or swimming, whatever type of athlete they are. But they just it's this overachiever mentality, this type A thing where I have to go, go, go. I'm only going to get faster if I do more work. When if they could just back it off, do the right kind of work, they'd find out they don't need nearly as much as they think in most cases. Yeah. I think of like when we go to every year we go to Kona and we see a lot of athletes there and, and it's kind of funny, like it's a pretty small Island in terms of population, relatively speaking. So when you walk around the Island and when Ironman world championships are there, everyone looks like an incredibly fit athlete because it's world championships. It's not just an Ironman race. And it's, it's quite an intimidating place to be in one respect, right? <laughs> Cause everybody looks like such a, an incredible athlete. The interesting thing about it though, is we see so many of these athletes that look incredibly fit and who knows why, you know, they may have had a mechanical on their bike. I don't know. They may have uh, gotten kicked in the face in the swim triathlon is a gnarly sport, but we see a lot of them that look extremely fit and, you know, they're, they're stumbling into the finish line, you know, late at night and they just, you know, they complain of fatigue and, you know, they're at a world championship level. It's just, it, I think that us type A driven people, these athletes that were not very good at, at establishing limits. And I think that that's something that especially, you know, is exhibited at that high level and it's something that, but it benefits all of us regardless of our level. So... Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys specifically about indoor versus outdoor training because my husband and I will be like, okay, we rode two hours today on the trainer. That's like riding three hours or four hours outside. Is there a way to say, to equate that to what it would be like riding outside? Yeah, the safest bet is uh, one and a half times. So we, we've got a lot of reputable coaches who uh, really favor the indoor training, whether it's winter or year round have recognized that it comes down to when you factor in all the disruptions that happen outside relative to basically none of those disruptions that happen inside. It's just constant pedaling, almost like you're on a steady climb the entire time. It's anywhere from 1.3 to 1.8 times if you want to put a hard number on it. And that balances out right about 1.5. So if you just think, I'm going to do a three-hour ride indoors, that's going to equate to roughly a four, four-and-a-half-hour ride outdoors. And it's a pretty safe ballpark. It's, it's worked quite well over the years. Yeah, and I think something that's interesting with that for mountain bikers specifically, which I'm primarily a mountain biker, just like you, Sonia. So 
I really like to get my interval work done where it's done best and then I can enjoy my time out on the trails or maybe work like in session, a section that's technical and might, you know, build my skill set in that respect rather than trying to mix my intervals outside. Now, sure, there are times that I do that, but I try to be specific with it and I try to be very strict with myself. So uh, the point is it's, it's pretty difficult to get in a structured interval workout. Some are easier than others if they maybe have, maybe it's not requiring you to ride at a consistent effort for 30 minutes, right? And on a mountain bike trail, I don't know of a single one that would allow that, right? <laughs> because you've got <laughs> constant undulations. Or if you're riding outside, chances are you're going to come across traffic, uh, wind, you're going to come across a, a stop sign, a stop light, who knows, any number of different things, a hill. And it can be really difficult to get your work done. And I think that a lot of cyclists, especially in the pro level, because they have the luxury of time or perhaps living in, in circumstances, they can temporarily live in a spot where it's very warm. You know, you live in Kelowna, BC, so you're dealing with a lot of snow, right? And I think that it's something that's interesting for us to consider is if we're honest, shouldn't we do that work or put a premium, like a really high priority on that work, on that interval work? Because it doesn't have to take a long time. Just get that priority done, right? Put first things first and get it done in the best spot that you can. So do your interval work where you can do it best and then get outside and enjoy it. And I really do feel like a lot of mountain bikers would benefit from that because you're able to still get in all the riding that you want to. You're more fit that way. So you're enjoying the ride a little bit more. And on top of that, I think that you aren't going to be causing an inconvenience for a lot of people on the trail, which I see pretty regularly by trying <laughs> to get in your intervals uh, while you're out on the trail. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, putting first things first. And I really love riding my mountain bike. And, and one of the things that I say is, you know, the best way to ruin a good trail is to put intervals into that trail. So I want to do my intervals inside. I want to do them where I can do them best without distractions and get them done quickly in the, in the proper times, then I can get outside and really enjoy my ride. So yeah, it's all about, for me, it's different purposes. And when I'm training, it's interval work. And I tell myself I'm training. And then when I'm going outside to enjoy a ride, I don't call it training. I call it riding. I still track all of that the same, but I try to be really strict with myself. So that way I'm never caught in a situation where I'm like, you know, I rode outside, but I called it training and I kind of did a few hard efforts and I'll think, and they were probably around one minute and I did about five of them. So I can call that, you know, my VO2 workout for the week. You know, I, I try not to do that. I'm really strict with that. And I've found a lot of benefit in the sense that I feel like everything becomes more structured and everything is in its right place. And I really, I'm a happier athlete in person as a result of that. So... I just, I look yeah. at it a little more simply, just in terms of conditioning and performance. The conditioning takes place indoors where we can control everything, keep it on target. And then the performance is what that conditioning yields outdoors. Yeah. So I want to ask you guys about stage racing because I do lots of stage racing myself. And there's a lot of people that email me asking me, how do you train for a stage race? Do you train differently? Are there extra things I should be doing? So what do you guys tell people? Pretty typically, it's the same fitness. You just have to manifest it every day, manufacture it every day. So it really comes down to the same thing. The conditioning has to be established. And then the performance in this case is going to be much more heavily reliant on your recovery protocols. You know, how you, based on how deep you go one day, how well you recover for the next day, how well you're nourishing all along, basically always leading the process, never getting behind it because you'll pay, you know, pretty heftily, should you. 
Yeah, something I think, and this may seem like a digression, but I promise you it'll bring us back. I think one of the biggest differences between the stereotypical professional athlete and then the the working athlete that we see is the fact that the professional athlete has much more ability to, I guess, uh, recover well rather than the standard athlete. So they're able to absorb more because it's easy for us to put in the hard work, the focus and the dedication into the work side of things, right? Then the training side of things. But then when we get into the recovery side, I think that we think, well, I'm not pushing hard gears on my bike right now. I'm sitting at my desk, so I'm recovering. But you're dealing with a ton of stress maybe, or you're, you know, you think, well, I lay down and, and, you know, I play with my kids. So that's laying down, you know, I'm, I'm recovering, but that's really not the type of recovery that perhaps your body needs. I imagine if we took our recovery as seriously as we took our training, and I think that there would be a lot of benefit. And it's funny because Chad and I raced uh, single track six last year, and man, I did not take my recovery seriously enough. <laughs> and single track six is a really technical, difficult uh, mountain bike stage race. And this year it was in the Kootenai. So it was a really, it was insane terrain. It was really fun, a ton of fun. I loved it. But I was so worn out. That was my first, other than doing uh, pretty small road stage races that were three days, that was my first six day and especially a mountain bike stage race. I think that's a totally different ball game than what a lot of people experience with just a road stage race in the sense that the fatigue that your whole body takes on is so, so great. And I found myself in that situation kind of wishing that I was a pro at, at recovering <laughs> instead of just a, you know, a Joe try hard, almost pro guy at training hard. You know, I feel like that would have been a, something that really helped me. Like being a pro recoverer is huge. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what we got wrong with single track six. Um, Jonathan was the only one who rode you know, five of the six stages. And Nate crashed out early and I did <laughs> did every other. And I had to do every other because my recovery was never taken seriously. I mean, I included beer. I didn't time my nutrients all that well. I wasn't eating for the next workout. I wasn't eating enough during the, the rides themselves. And of course, it all came crashing down. On top of it, we were staying in a place that didn't exactly facilitate recovery because it was so <laughs> dreadfully hot. We could never really get away oh. from some form of stress. There was never any legitimate downtime. Mm -hmm. But if we blew anything or if I blew anything, it was that I didn't recover well. And, and it reflected in every subsequent day because it just went downhill, downhill, downhill. <laughs> yeah, something that I think, you know, triathletes know this very well. Triathletes always say the fourth sport in triathlon is nutrition. And I think that with stage racing, whatever, if you're doing road or if you're doing mountain biking or if you're doing running, you are absolutely competing with nutrition as well. And it's something that you have to get down. And I'm sure you've, you've realized this too, because you can race one day. And, and, you know, relatively speaking, depending on the event, you can kind of get away with subpar nutrition a lot of the time if you just do one day. But then when you have to race again the next day and the next, you really have to make sure that that nutrition is nailed down. And that's why I think it's really important to have your training very consistently structured and something that's reliable and you know that it's it's solid. So then that way, what you can do is you can experiment with your nutrition during your training and you can say, okay, turns out that I love this berry smoothie after my rides with my recovery drink. When I take that in, for some reason, when I mix in berries and, you know, there are different studies showing that antioxidants can be detrimental to recovery, something like that. But in some cases it shows that they're better. So rather than specifically focusing on that, maybe you recognize that berry smoothie is not a great thing for you when you have to do back to back workouts, you know, one day after the next, and it's, it's really tough. So you have to test that stuff beforehand. 
I remember reading in Tyler Hamilton's book that he said George Hincapie was an absolute pro at recovering. And in other words, at being lazy, right? Like <laughs> he would lay on the he would lay on the couch and everything that he could possibly need for the next like 16 hours was always within his grasp, right? He never had to move. He just stayed right there. And I think that that's something that with a stage race, if you really want to be performing at your peak levels and it's going to be a demanding race, put a lot of work into understanding what you can do to recover and fully recover and take that seriously. So for stage racing, yeah, like Chad said, I feel like once again, we're talking about the, the component of making sure that you have the necessary skill in place and the, and the necessary training and fitness so that you can perform well. But then add in the recovery and the nutrition side of things. You really have to make sure that those are dialed in, especially when you get down to stage five of six and it really matters. And, you know, that's when things can go awry. So, yeah. And I think it's an important point to make that you can't always control all of these variables. Like some of these stage races, you're camping and it's going to be hot or it's going to be cold or it's going to be raining. And like the food tent is really far away and it's like a 10 minute walk. And guess what? You have to go to the food tent a lot or the bathroom's really far away or it's hard to sleep or like there's catering and you don't actually get to eat the things that you normally want to eat. So being mentally flexible with a lot of things that can happen, I think not only help you in the grand scheme of things, because there's things that you can't control with your recovery sometimes. And trying not to stress out about those and realize that everybody is in the same boat as you is important. And also that that helps you everywhere else. Like people always say, oh, well, do you have like a, a pre-race routine that you do every single time to help you stay relaxed? And I used to, but after stage racing so many years, I don't have a routine I need to follow anymore because I've been in so many different situations where I can have pretty much anything thrown at me and I'm still able to stay calm because I've seen it all. So, and that's helped me in my daily life too, with, with just not being able to control everything around me all the time and just accepting that I'm just, I'm just going to keep doing my best and that, that, and just accepting what that situation is. And that's a perfect point. You have to recognize that some level of flexibility is necessary. And I think that's what makes you the successful athlete that you are, because you're not on a pro tour team where everything is handed to you and, and handled for you. You have to do so much of that work on your own and you still make it work. And I think that's because of your attitude and your flexibility. Yeah, it's, it's something that we talked about the other day about pre-race routines. And I think that if your routine is contextually dependent, then you put yourself in a dangerous situation. Uh, you have to be able to control things internally and, you know, disregard the external influences that, that could rest there. And I think that that you bring up a good point and I want to clarify and, and actually apply that to what I was saying about you know, learning to with your nutrition and recovery and everything else, whenever you're refining a process like this, you should be hunting for principles that govern success rather than context, if that makes sense. Because like you said, you'll show up at a race and, you know, you'll think, no, I need to have this exact thing every morning before I race. But well, the fact is, you know, you might be in South Africa and you have black beans for breakfast and that's all you're going to have, right? So you have to understand the fact, well, I know that, you know, I might do well with these certain types of foods. I might not, but I know that if I time my nutrition properly, or if I have these certain things that I can manage, perhaps things that are within your control, then you can still retain some type of the benefit or anything else that you're going for. But yeah, flexibility is key. Absolutely key. In fact, I remember on single track six, there was a guy that 
uh, Evan Guthrie actually he's a really fast Canadian oh, racer yeah. and uh, he was in the shuttle going back from one of the stages and I remember he was somehow had managed to lie down in this really crowded van he was like laying on his back with like his legs up and he had his shoes off and everyone was you know freaked out because he had his stinky feet up there and everything but he was like he was just like no man I'm enforcing this situation right now you know like he was it wasn't ideal he didn't have a bed to lay down in or anything else but he was doing the best he could with what he had so I think it's something that we can all learn from there for sure Yeah. So there's something I want to ask you guys as an athlete. So I was doing the Pettit recovery ride yesterday and it's just like, for those of you who don't know, it's just a really like 30 minute easy spin on the trainer. And you guys tend to put all these notes that, that pop up on the screen and the app telling you why you're doing something or even giving you encouragement or telling you how to breathe in some of the harder workouts. But there was something that I read in there and sometimes I miss it because I'm not always paying attention to the app and I'll just kind of see it out of the corner of my eye. But it said like, Recovery rides within four to 24 hours of a hard workout can really be beneficial, sometimes more beneficial than a complete rest day. So can you talk about that? Yeah, that ties back to a certain type of up signaling that takes place down at the cell level where you're operating in, to some extent, a glycogen depleted state. So you did a hard workout in the morning and you're following it up you know, in a, in a pretty narrow time frame, so well within a day that your glycogen stores haven't been fully repleted. So you're sending a stronger stimulus to the actual genes way down at the DNA level, switching on certain switches, letting your body know you need further aerobic adaptation. And it's, it's not even controversial. It, it's actually pretty well supported by science and pretty well agreed upon amongst you know those in the know. Yeah, it's interesting. And on top of that too, there are other benefits that you can get from just an easy spin, even psychological benefits that I think a lot of people perhaps uh, may overlook. Just being able to get back on the bike and spin and not be as afraid of it because maybe you're just doing a ton of hard work (laughs) and you've got this kind of unhealthy association that you need to, anytime you're sitting on your bike and clipped in, you need to be pushing hard. There can be psychological benefits. Uh, There's obviously, you know, if you've just worked out and then you're just sitting down right after that, then that can be tough too. So, you know, maybe what you're doing with that is you're just, you know, getting some circulation going and, and just, you know, a lot of it too is just, you know, like I said, psychological for me on those recovery rides, it can be really beneficial. It allows me to kind of think through things and reacquaint myself with my bike and kind of fall in love with it a little bit again. Yeah. So like I've been at stage races. So an example was I was in the the stage race in Columbia last year and this was a hard stage race. It was between five and eight hours of racing every single day with like Like there was literally four hour long climbs. Like it was insane. And I would see some of the top pro guys, they'd like ride their bike, race their bike for like five, six hours. And then they would go for a ride. Like in the evening, they'd all be like kitted up going out for a ride. And I could not understand how (laughs) they could possibly be doing that and how that could possibly be beneficial until I read that little thing that you said, well, even four hours after going for a light spin could help. So do you think that in a stage race, that is something to apply if you're completely blown? I don't think that's what they were chasing in that instance. I mean, that's something you reserve for training. Uh, I think more accurately, they were probably just out trying to spin the legs. A lot of athletes feel better when they stay active as opposed to sitting and you know reclining and recovering more passively. So I just think that's an active form of recovery for them. So just stimulate the limb system, get the blood circulating, moving oxygen to the muscles, waste product out. I'd be willing to bet that's what they were chasing. But do you think that's a good thing to do? 
I think it depends on the rider. It probably is for them. They probably recognize that if they went home, just kicked their legs up, maybe they got to the start line the next day and their legs felt heavy or flat for a good portion of the race, maybe the entirety of the race. So it's probably something they employed enough times to know that it did benefit them. Yeah, it's a lot of testing it out because I see a lot of average Joes kind of uh, applying those principles blindly doing so. So they'll see a situation where, you know, they they hear that Chris Froome, when he's doing the Tour de France, goes out and actually does a pretty hard ride on his recovery day. But, you know, he's trained at a very different level and he knows exactly what's going to help him in these situations. So experience reigns supreme here and understanding what that does to your body. But once again, especially if you're somewhat new to this stage racing game or anything else, have to remember the fact that you're dosing your body with a lot of stress. So erring on the side of caution, even you know if you are going to go out and do a spin, just make sure that you aren't out there and you aren't pedaling too hard. You aren't do, putting too much work on there. Because remember, especially if you're in the middle of a stage race, the name of the game and what you're really chasing is performance when it matters. And another possibility, Sonia, is that those guys were actually training. Maybe that wasn't their peak event <laughs> and they were trying to accumulate a little more stress. Maybe they knew what they had to get out of the day and five or six hours wasn't cutting it, as, as crazy as that sounds. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, wow. terrifying point, but a good point. <laughs> that is a terrifying point. Yeah, I've actually thought of, like, after I saw them do that and then thought about this recovery, going for a short recovery ride, at stage races, I will be very sore and very flat at the start, and my legs just feel like these bags of deadness <laughs> and yep. that they're just like hanging off the bone and you're just trying to like get them moving again so that might be something i might want to try is like a, a really super like a 20 minute really gentle spin in the evening to try and see if that helps ward off that dead meat feeling yeah exactly give it a shot cool well we are just about out of time there's a bunch of other things i wanted to talk about like coming back from sickness or injury i don't know if you guys have time to chat about it do you guys yeah, have a few yeah, extra absolutely. minutes? Yep. Yeah, no problem. Okay. That's a super common question that we get too. Yeah, because like a bunch of us, you were mentioning like Chad's getting over getting sick and I was sick for like three weeks and I admittedly like I dove back into training a little bit too aggressively and I didn't pay for it in a negative way. But when I look back at what I did, I was like, that might have been a little bit much. So how would you help, tell people to get back into training? How would you prescribe that in a way that yeah, exactly that's what you did right good? there, Sonia, is what we warn people against probably the most strongly. <laughs> Uh, they feel like they have to make up for lost time, right? I've been off the bike. I've been sick. My FTP is going backwards. This is unacceptable. I'm going to get it all back today or over the course of the next few workouts. Even though my body's still reeling from you know the, the previous infection or injury or whatever it is, I'm going to push harder than I typically do just to get caught up. And unfortunately, that's not the way the body works. And it certainly doesn't work that way when your body's already trying to come back from something. So it's already dealing with one form of stress and you're heaping on another, trying to right the ship, as it were. And it's just the wrong way to go about it. So we typically typically recommend that you ease back into it. You, know, you, you start with a light workout, see how you feel, then you up the intensity of your next workout. And while that may make it a two or three or four day return to actual training, it's far better safe than sorry. Yeah. And if you are coming back and you feel like it is too much too soon, then you have to be okay with taking some more time off. And I think that uh, something that's really hard for us type A athletes is to tell ourselves because we, we feel panicked every training session that we miss because we're sick. So then we end up just, you know, piling on more stress. And like we said, once again, stress from all sides of our lives, from all aspects of our lives affects our performance on the bike. So rather than looking at it from the perspective of this is terrible, I'm missing my training, you have to kind of look at it from the perspective of, well, you know, in this situation, I'm 
can't add stress onto my body or the stress that I'm adding onto my body isn't going to be making me any faster on the bike. And if I can't train on the bike right now, then I'm going to take my days off that I need to, but it's going to pay off in the long run. The other thing that I try to look at when I'm sick is, hey, at least I'm recovering right now. And I usually suck at recovering because <laughs> I don't <laughs> put enough work into it. So a sickness kind of forces me into recovering better. So even if I'm totally just tricking myself in my brain there, because your body is doing a whole lot of work to try to get better from that sickness. It's not like it's just, you know, kicking up and relaxing. But even if I'm tricking myself, it helps me in those moments get a little bit of calm in the sense that I think, hey, to get faster, I need to train and recover. And I know I can't train right now, so I'm just going to double down on recovery and I'm going to trust that that's going to help my performance. And I think those psychological benefits that we can even impose ourselves just by thinking slightly differently, they really are tangible on the bike. They can have a big impact. And you really do just have to understand that these things happen. It's just like you talked about. You have to be flexible and you can't let it get you down that maybe you're going to lose a little bit of fitness, but you'll get it back. So just don't worry too much about it. Yeah, I guess more specifically, though, like I'll keep using my own example is I did ease really slowly. I actually eased in for about a week back into training. Then the next week I said, okay, well now I'm back at it. And is it like a slow ramp back into the intensity or is it like you just keep riding easy until you feel good again? And then once you feel like hundred percent healthy and good, it's okay to just like start hammering away at the training. Now there's no, no single wrong answer. So I think exactly what you did, you played it a bit cautiously and then you dove in and, you know, kind of saw how it went and it went well. So it worked out for you. And just like Jonathan said, had you, you know, you take that easy week and then you start to ramp things back up and you're still just not feeling like you can get on top of it and the workouts aren't productive and maybe your illness is starting to flare back up, then you, you, you tone it back down again. But I think you did exactly what you should have. Could you have ramped a little more steadily and then gradually increase the intensity? Sure. But that's not a necessary route. Yeah. It's, it, there's no solid, like, um, it's tricky. There's no direct answer on this. Um, uh -huh. in terms of like saying like you need X amount of days to recover from, or you need to keep it below a certain percentage of your threshold or anything like that. Because number one, everybody's body is slightly different. The sickness that you've gone through is slightly different. Who knows? There's so many different variables, but it really comes down to, and I think that this is a principle that's extremely important is that if you are cautious with your training, with what you're doing, and once again, assuming that it's properly structured in terms of the intensity and everything else, but if you err on the side of caution, it's a much easier thing to dig yourself out of that perhaps lack of fitness that you perceive than going in too hard because digging yourself out of a hole is extremely difficult because usually that requires a lot of complete rest. So it's really the principle or the guiding principle that's here and it's boring and it's not a great answer in the sense that, you know, it's not what our brain wants, but the best way is to just, once again, make sure that you aren't overdoing it. Caution is something that can, the erring on the side of caution really helps here. Yeah. So like, should people reduce their FTP? Cause I think that might be something I did wrong is I said, nope, I know I laid on the couch for 10 days. And I know that I like could barely ride for another week after that, but I'm going to keep my FTP at the same level. And then I was suffering like crazy in my workouts. And then I feel like just in the last week, that FTP number might actually be correct now because I'm not suffering as much as I was before. So like, should people do an FTP test getting back in? Yeah, you can. It's not often necessary, especially for a span of 10 days. That's about where we cut it off. So anything 10 days or under, you're probably okay to resume at, at your previous FTP or your current FTP. If it's been longer than that, it's probably a good idea to recess or reassess. 
There might have been a slight drop in fitness, at least one and enough so that the workouts are a little too strenuous. You know, maybe if you, you have a 250-watt threshold and it just drops to 240, may not seem like much, but depending on the type of work you're doing, it could be just a little too much, a little too strenuous. Maybe change the shape of the workout a little bit, but again, it, it's really more about allowing your body to, to rebound. Yeah, I think that your threshold doesn't change as quickly as a lot of people perhaps think. Perhaps your ability to express all of that that threshold can be hampered by the sickness. That can be difficult, but even just turning down the intensity of the workout is something that I would recommend before altering that FTP. And with Trainer Road, that's really easy to do, but you're basically like aiming to just take the workout and then just drop the bar, so to speak, a bit. Just lower the overall volume or lower the overall intensity of that workout. And I think that that's something that you can do and safely, and, and that way you aren't going through and you know doing an FTP test that's going to be a ton of stress, perhaps, uh, while you're feeling, not feeling great. That way you can just run it down in lower intensities and then just pick it up as you start to feel better. Cool. And are you guys currently taking athletes? I get people that email me wanting a coach or looking for coaching. Can I send them your way? No, sadly, we don't have enough time to coach individual athletes. So this is all about trying to help help the most people with uh, not, not the least amount of time commitment on our end, but we want to spread ourselves uh, really widely. Yeah, we, we try to be the most effective as we can at training a lot of mm -hmm. people. And there are people, uh, you know, in over 150 countries today using the app all over the world. Wow. Millions of workouts are done with it. So, and Chad's one man. So, <laughs> yeah, as, as any coach can attest, to coach well, you really have to spend a lot of time with your athletes. It's a very time intensive sort of affair. Yeah. And what we're really focused on is finding the best way to train people across the board. And, you know, it's interesting. I think that coaching. There's more to coaching than just laying out workouts. And I think in my personal opinion, I feel the true value in a coach, an actual coach, is in the accountability partner and having somebody there to help you through something. And I think the the structuring, the training part, I think is something that that you know we're we're able to handle that very well with Trainer Road. And we're able to understand your performance and and know where you're going and help you get there. But I think that a lot of people, in terms of having a coach, I don't have a specific coach, but I definitely have people that fulfill that role in my life. They guide me, they support me, they provide insight that I need or knowledge and wisdom that I don't have. So it's not necessarily in our case, if we were to try to coach everybody, man, we'd, we'd be extremely unsuccessful at that in terms of coaching them individually like that. In terms of accountability, I've got about, I don't know, a couple thousand Strava followers who hold me accountable every <laughs> single workout I do. Yeah, constantly. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, we, we don't accept uh, like individual coaches coaching clients or anything else like that. However, if you're looking for a better way to train, obviously, that's what we want to help you with. So uh, it, it train a road there. And if you have a coach, bring your coach. Uh, there are plenty of ways that you can work with your coach and train a road. It's not a replacement for coaching necessarily, if that makes sense. Where is the best place for people to find coaches? Like say people are still trying to figure out their body and they need that one-on-one -on -one accountability. There's so many coaches, there's so many different things happening. Like how do people actually pick a coach? I think a slightly unconventional route is better. So like the, the typical one would be find a coaching network, go online and look for a coaching network with a reputable group or something else like that. And while that could help, but you know, more often than not, what I hear is, yeah, I've got this coach, you know, I, I haven't met him. I've had a few Skype calls. I just don't know if he understands my specific situation. And I think that an effective coach in terms of what we're talking about, like an accountability partner, somebody to guide you and help you with that sort of stuff. 
I would suggest the unconventional approach of looking for somebody that you either know or understands your situation or has the potential to do so. So a local racing area, for example, if you know of a rider and he may not even be a coach, but you say, hey, you know, I would love, and I know you're not a coach, but I would love for you to some, to help guide me through learning the ropes or I'm prepping for this event. I know that you know a lot about it. If you're using Trainer Road, you could say, you could even say, I've got my training on track. I don't need you to lay that out for me. You know, you can advise me on it. It'd be great. But what I really need is I need that accountability partner and somebody to help me. So I would look at, you know, people that you could meet at local races, people that have done a race before that you're planning on racing. I would look for athletes or coaches that have a lot of experience in that situation. And that's where I would kind of, that's how I would pick my coach, either because of a personal relationship, whether that be firsthand or secondhand, or I would try to find a person that understands what I'd be going for. So it's a slightly unconventional route, but that's what I would suggest. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much, you guys. I think we covered a lot of information and I think that people should go to your podcast and check out all of your articles. Where's the best place for people to, to get access to all of that stuff? Yeah, you can go to trainerroad.com. And then if you want to go to the podcast, you can look it up on any podcast app you have or Spotify or anything else. Or you can go to trainerroad.com slash podcast. And we have a blog on there too, where we put up a, a bunch of our, the research that we do and, and the different insights that we want to share with folks. And that's at blog.trainerroad.com. Cool. Yeah. And I actually think that your guys' Twitter is a really good place to follow along as well, because you guys are really good about sending out all that new stuff as it comes up. And I probably click the most on the Trainer Road's Twitter out of anybody's Twitter. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Yeah. We put <laughs> a lot of work into that. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having us, Sonia. Yeah, we appreciate it. Those Trainer Road guys are a goldmine of cycling knowledge. Make sure that you check out their podcast and their blog. There's a lot of great information. And you can even ask them your own questions and they will eventually answer them. Because I know that whenever you start listening to shows like this, even more questions come up in your head and you want to ask more specific questions that are tailored to you. So I definitely recommend going and connecting with those guys. Super pumped to have you guys here listening to the show. I really appreciate that you're here. I appreciate that you're listening to all of my episodes and that you're sharing it with your friends. It really is a great journey and it's my privilege that I get to produce this show. And I also love hearing from you guys. So thanks so much for those messages that you've been sending. Big thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and healthy people. You know how all of us endurance athletes have a lower resting heart rate? Some carriers will actually penalize people if their heart rate is too low because they don't know what that means. Or sometimes they'll penalize you for having a BMI that is higher than what they think it should be. Sometimes as athletes, our BMIs are actually higher because we have muscles and it's not a very good algorithm just to judge someone based on their BMI. That's the body mass index. So Health IQ helps them recognize that there is a sign of excellent health and fitness. And if you want to save money on your life insurance, get a quote from them. Go to healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent for a free quote. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. That way you will catch all future episodes. A little notification will pop up on your phone or in your iTunes or Spotify just to let you know that, hey, we have more information and another new guest for you to listen to. 
I also really appreciate the reviews you guys have been leaving on iTunes. If you haven't done it yet, please take a few moments just to hit some stars, preferably five, but whatever you feel is appropriate, and write a little note. It definitely helps bring more people to the show. It raises visibility in iTunes, and it just is great to help other people find my show, and I appreciate that. Big thank you to my audio producer, Roma, who is incredibly reliable and puts out amazing content for you guys. He's the one that cleans up the show and makes it sound really good. I've posted the raw files before and people actually did notice a big difference. So it does make a difference having an audio producer. And Roma has been with me from the beginning since episode one of the show. So thank you, Roma, for all of your hard work. That's it for today's show. We'll see you back here next week. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and I will talk with you soon. 